Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linaduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me again too. Again, Lucy, because you were away. I was. You left me. I did, I'm, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm back now. <laughs> what did you do when you weren't here with me? Oh, just all sorts of things. Bit of gardening, went to the seaside, bit of reading, surprisingly. Well, you're going to have to say what now? I hope it's it's possible to share it. Yeah, I read On Time and Water by uh, Andre Magnusson, who is an Icelandic writer. And in fact, I read one of his others uh, called Dreamland. And in fact, went to Iceland and met him and wrote about it in the TLS oh. um, in, a, in a piece which has afterwards become legendary in the office because <laughs> I confidently expounded on the solid uh, economy and general well-being of uh, Iceland. I would say maybe two weeks before the whole thing collapsed. <laughs> I just in the piece, I say it was, you know, I can't remember what the number was. Fourth most uh, successful economy in the world, you oh, know. <laughs> beware any country that Lucy Dallas writes about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but but it's a brilliant book. It's about it's about he was writing about environmental things then, but he was coming from being a kind of poet and much more literary. And now he writes much more about environmental things, but he writes from, there's a bit of personal and it's a bit mythical. He meets the Dalai Lama, has a long chat with him. Um, he has two long chats with him actually. And uh, and there's and it's, and there's lots of science and he's trying to, he says at one point he meets a scientist at a climate conference who says, uh, why aren't you? Why aren't you talking about this? Why aren't you telling stories about this? And uh, the author Andrew Magnuson says, "Well, I'm not a scientist. I, I'm not, you know, qualified to tell people this." And the scientist says, "Yes, but 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 we're not storytellers, mm. and people aren't people aren't listening to us. It's difficult to listen to numbers. Mm. It's difficult to comprehend the scale. It's it's hard to communicate. And what you do is tell stories which people understand. So you have to tell it so that people understand it. So that you know." Uh, so that people can 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 do something about it. And when when was that? Because that, I mean that is happening much more now than than it was. Yes, but but so the book is quite recent. I think the paperback is just coming out now. 
but I think it's happening more than it was. But I think I think his his uh, point is that it needs to happen a lot more. Mm. And and because he's in Iceland, actually, some of the stuff is just very uh, is very clear and present. So they've lost a lot of valuable land because it's been uh, given over to the smelting companies, which is what he was talking about. 10 years ago or whatever. And I wonder, I think as well, maybe if you, if you, if you live somewhere in, you know, in the shadow of, of, of a volcano or, you know, uh, near the continental divide, these things sort of, you can't help but, but see them and think about yourself in the context of, of yes, that. Because, because he writes about glaciers a lot as well. And so his, his, he talks about his grandparents who used to go out on the glaciers and map them when nobody had and now the glaciers are just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So, so it's it's very clear, mm. you know, it's what very clear to him. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's really good though because sometimes a, a climate change works are so terrifying that you're just a bit paralysed. But it's not like that. Sounds very interesting. So, what was what was its title? It's called "On Time and Water." Well, that sounds uh, that sounds like a very worthwhile suggestion. Uh, thank you, thank you very much, Lucy. Um, now, coming up on this week's show. The poet and composer Ivor Gurney spent most of his adult life forcibly constrained, first in the trenches of the Western Front and then from 1922 until his death in 1937 in a lunatic asylum. Kate Kennedy, the author of A New Life of Gurney, will tell us how this confinement spurred him to express himself with a peculiarly direct, urgent intensity. And with Independent Bookshop Week just around the corner, we'd like to do some tub thumping. But first, to the Bengali polymath Rabindranath Tagore, the recipient in 1913 of the Nobel Prize in Literature. He was the first non-white and non-European to win the prize, in fact, which is in itself remarkable. And yet in most countries beyond his own, he is now the subject of extraordinary neglect. This week, Razinka Chowdhury, the author of The Literary Thing, History, Poetry and the Making of a Modern Cultural Sphere, reviews a brief biography of Tagore by Bashabi Fraser, part of a series called Critical Lives. But no summary in 200 pages, she says, can be expected to do justice to the vast, complex and influential oeuvre of this poet, who is also a short story writer, dramatist, educationist, artist, songwriter, composer and many other things. It is important, however, that his name be put into circulation in contemporary times to remind the world of Rabindranath Tagore yet again. Rosinka Chowdhury joins us from Calcutta now to do precisely that. Hello, Rosinka. Hi. So we need to be reminded of Tagore and all he stood for and achieved. So let's start at the beginning of the story and work our way through as best we can. Um, perhaps you could kick things off with a, a brief introduction as if as if to the Western man in the street. Sure. Um, so uh, Rabindranath Tagore's family were and, 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 and are uh, still in the memory of Bengalis, a very important family. His grandfather was called Prince Darukanath Tagore. Uh, he was a businessman, a landowner, immensely rich, hugely successful. His father, on the other hand, was called Maharshi Devendranath Tagore. Maharshi as in Maharishi, uh, to denote his religious turn, really a sort of Oedipal turn against his father almost. Rabindranath was born in 1861 as the youngest child of 14 children. He came at the end of a long line of very, very distinguished uh, brothers and sisters, uh, novelists, composers, philosophers, 
artists they they were an extraordinary family and and uh, their family history is extraordinary as well the thing to remember about the family though uh, just to note that they were in fact uh, what were called pirali brahmins that is they had fallen from uh, they were considered to have lost their caste as true brahmins so so in a sense i only mention that because in a sense they were always that family were always outsiders in some sense to orthodox society which may have in a way enabled their independence and daring in in everything that they did in the 19th century the other thing to mention in the context of this family and in the context of rubinath tagore within that family and outsiders outside it uh, would be the city itself where this family was located calcutta uh the city of modernity the the second city of the british empire an astonishing cultural uh, uh, production occurred in this city over the 19th century this is sometimes called the bengal renaissance but in any case what is important is that it was at the time one of the great cities of the world comparable to anywhere else in the world the sad thing is that i don't think anybody but bengalis are actually aware of the the in, enormous achievements of the city at this time of the city and its and its and its great men uh, at this time and and this man- and um in in particular i suppose i mean it's so we have a very clear sense of a of a very literary family and and you say they were they were sort of outsiders um he was particularly precocious wasn't he, he i i read somewhere that he wrote his first poems when he was still a, a child yes quite right his first published poems were modeled on chatterton he he actually mentioned chatterton in a letter and he said except for the bit about the suicide i quite like the idea um he pretended to be um, a medieval bengali uh, poet called bhanushingho and he published published this corpus of poetry that he called the bhanushinger padabal it was just a series of beautiful uh, luminous songs that survived to this day uh, yes and those were published when he was 16 and of course the world uh, for a while thought that an ancient or rather a medieval manuscript had been discovered of immense beauty until he said that uh, you know until he revealed that he had uh, sort of written them himself so that <laughs> that so that was the inauguration of his career literary fraud it's a great tradition isn't it of of a literary fraud like that i mean it, it sounds as though um because he's got this extraordinary career in which to us he seems to be able to to turn his hand to anything but maybe within that time and as you say in that city and even within that family that was perhaps not quite so exceptional if he was surrounded by composers and novelists and you know um this this was this was what they did he was a product very much do you think of 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 that time and and his family yes absolutely it is true that 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 his family was extraordinary it is true that the city he lived in was in an extraordinary phase of cultural creativity but it is also true that no one person actually encompassed so many different <laughs> uh, fields and genres this is the thing i mean he had a brother who was a philosopher a brother who was a composer but they did the one thing uh, or, or at the most uh, you know two or three uh, uh, they would they may have played the violin and written a play or two but but he he was i mean he was just vast and was it as a poet then that you first encountered him and do you recall the circumstances and and the experience of that first encounter so you know there is no first encounter in in that sense like many others of my generation i grew up surrounded by him but not in the way that he's available now um now he is around us as a national almost an embalmed icon 
icon. Um, but but in my childhood uh, in the 1970s, much more vividly and personally present for us. My grandparents lived in Shantiniketan. My grandfather had returned with a B, uh, DSC from Edinburgh in 1926. And he had retired as uh, uh, the Cairo professor of physics from Calcutta University. And he chose to go and live in Shantiniketan because he loved Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, <laughs> so, so this is what they did at the time. He and his youngest brother, the artist Shudhiranjan Kastagir, they they lived there. So that that those surroundings are very familiar to me from frequent visits uh, to them. So the houses with their distinctive low architecture, it is a, a particular architectural style. Um, the surrounding landscape that he writes about so frequently in his poetry of vast open fields, uh, ravines that are called the Khoai in Bengali, distant train tracks, red unpaved roads. These things are, are, are sculpted in my memory, uh, really. Um, and also my mother studied there for two years from 1959 to 61. So, so she was trained in dance. So, And this is the thing that Rabindranath did. He, he emphasized that what he wanted to teach at his school and then college was to be outside of the colonial educational curriculum. He emphasized the arts, the fine arts, painting, music, dancing. This is what he gave precedence over, 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 uh, or, or at least equally to uh, literary studies or, or studies in the humanities. Um, and so, so the songs of the dance dramas that Tagore wrote, the Bhanushinger Padhaboli that I just mentioned, Chitrangoda, Shama, Chandalika, these are names every Bengali knows. Uh, you know, so, so she would perform these on stage from time to time. And these records, these long playing records would be playing on the home stereo. So, so really, in a sense, we, we, we grew up with him all around. We learned him in school. Later on, we read his novels and his mature poetry. So in a sense, he was everywhere, but in a way that I was not even aware of at the time. So, you know, a discipline wise, I was more interested in English literature <laughs> growing up. That's what I studied. So all of this was in the background, really, which is what makes it so remarkable. Um, well, so, I mean, obviously he, he has inspired everyone who has come after him from the sounds of it. So. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about his own inspirations and influences, artistically or politically speaking. I know he travelled a lot. Ah, that's a very interesting question because he actually um, was the first modern poet, in a sense, who, when he was very young, 14, 15, tried to follow the style of the poets who had written in Bengali before him, who are now considered minor poets, really, and people who, uh, you know, whose names uh, people don't remember very much anymore. He sort of turned against them uh, to, to write uh, in a form that was, that was new and, and, and came in for some criticism at the time. So lyric poetry, really, that was very, uh, 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 that was imbued with a sort of personal tone. Um, and different in form from what had gone before. So really, he was he was doing something completely new with the poetry, uh, which is why he was attacked, uh, criticized, uh, reviled, um, but also then slowly acknowledged. Yeats came across his work, didn't he? A, a translation, which I think Tagore said wasn't much cop later on, but of the Gitanjali, is that right? Yes. And, and Yeats just thought this was wonderful and kind of pushed it on everybody he could and 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 tried to spread the word um, as much as he could. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. That is exactly what happened. He 
took with him on the ship as he was traveling to England, a small notebook of translations that he had begun in Eastern Bengal on his father's estates. Um, and these he kept revising on the ship. Um, uh, once he, in London, he was hosted in London by the artist William Rothenstein, who introduced him to Yeats and the London literary circle. And it was Yeats, you're absolutely right, who, who was ecstatic about some of the translations uh, uh, that, that uh, Rabindranath had done. Um, he wrote in 1912, for instance, Yeats, that is, these prose translations from Rabindranath Tagore have stirred my blood as nothing has for years, he said. Uh, he continued, a whole people, a whole civilization, immeasurably strange to us, seems to have been taken up into this imagination. And yet we are not moved because of its strangeness, but because we have met our own image. So that's a quote from some of the many wonderful things Yeats said about the book of poems that became the Gitanjali that, uh, that was published in London in 1912. And then of course, reviewing it, Ezra Pound would compare Tagore to Dante. And yes, he, 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 was, he was promoted by this group. And a year later, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for that book. You tell the story of Wilfred Owen's mother as well. I mean, just to, to give a sense of this being a time when, as you say, everybody who read knew his name, Wilfred Owen's mother uh, became familiar with him. Yes, that is such an interesting story. If there's time, I can read you a little bit from the letter she wrote, um, uh, Robindra. Absolutely, that would be that would be lovely. Right. So she's writing this in August of 1920. Uh, uh, you know, when Tagore was in England, um, and uh, he he receives uh, this letter that is addressed to. Um, Dear Sir Rabindranath, because by that time he has been knighted. Um, although, of course, in 1919, he returned that knighthood in protest over the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. But she does address him as Dear Sir Rabindranath. And she writes, I have been trying to find courage to write to you ever since I heard that you were in London. But the desire to tell you something is finding its way into this letter today. The letter may never reach you, for I do not know how to address it, though I feel sure your name upon the envelope will be sufficient. It is nearly two years ago that my dear eldest son went out to the war for the last time, and the day he said goodbye to me, we were looking together across the sun-glorified sea, looking towards France with breaking hearts, when he, my poet son, said those wonderful words of yours, beginning at, and she quotes, when I go from hence, let this be my parting word, unquote. And when his pocketbook came back to me, I found these words written in his dear writing with your name beneath. Would it be asking too much of you to tell me what book I should find the whole poem in? So that was, of course, Susan Owen, mother of Wilfred Owen. And the verse was from... Uh, the Gitanjali, as we know. Could you just, sorry, could, could you just read as the, just the rest of that when, when I go from hence, because it's so beautiful what, what it is that, the, in the, that he's written down in the book. Yeah, so it's a very short poem. I, I, can, I can read the entire, uh, entire poem. It's a sort of prose poem. I, I can read it. It's, it's just a few lines. Um, when I go from hence, let this be my parting word, that what I have seen is unsurpassable. I have tasted of the hidden honey of this lotus that expands on the ocean of light, and thus I am blessed. Let this be my parting word. 
in this playhouse of infinite forms i have had my play and here have i caught sight of him who is formless my whole body and my limbs have thrilled with his touch who is beyond touch and if the end comes here let it come let this be my parting word and and i mean clearly we have now um you know an image of of a man who who not only was his work uh, is his oeuvre as you say incredibly vast uh, but also it touched very many people so i mean why is it that he has been how did he go from being so known so loved to being so overlooked by so many now do you think i mean clearly it's it's more than just a question of changing tastes surely yes uh, well um a number of things really changing tastes uh, certainly uh, you know part of the uh, answer lies for instance in a phrase in this poem itself in the second line that i read out i have tasted of the hidden honey of this lotus that expands on the ocean of light now phrases like that hidden honey of this lotus that expands on the ocean of light there were far too many of these sorts of phrases in the poems that he chose to translate later i think he succumbed to the temptation to give the west again with you know uh, within uh, quotes uh, to give to give the western world what it wanted um, or what he thought it uh, it wanted and that led to a fall in his reputation among the modernists ezra pound gave up on him completely yeats in 1917 uh, wrote to macmillan these later poems are drowning his reputation and then again in 1935 he wrote to rothenstein i'm quoting from a letter from yeats damn to go we got out three good books sturge more and i and then because he thought it more important to see and know english than to be a great poet he brought out sentimental rubbish and wrecked his reputation so there was that but Rabindranath was aware of the fact that he wasn't translating his works well they weren't being translated well and he wasn't translating his own works well and he wasn't translating the right things uh, you know if you ask me now later looking back he he translated the things he thought uh, would be popular and would be wanted but but those were not at the core of who he was and what his poetry was so maybe it will it it will go, go on to be done it hasn't been done uh, successfully very much yet it, there there are poems that have been translated well of course but uh, not enough and i think while we while we wait for these new translations which will um hopefully uh, come you say some are already underway what we do have uh, and the reason for your review we should say is these these two new books which we can just touch on briefly before um we'll have to let you go but one of them is the cambridge companion uh to rabindranath tagore edited by sukanta chaudhuri um and that that seems like a great book for anyone wanting to get a a solid sense of his his range of achievement and uh, and and influence and the other one is this this brief life do you think it's um do you think it's possible that these will help to reinvigorate him to kind of reintroduce him and and do that important work for for so many people who who haven't uh grown familiar with him already but well, they certainly should um 
as you uh, quite rightly say, Bashubi Fraser's biography is a short book, really. But these short books are often, uh, you know, uh, useful and popular and, and travel more from hand to hand uh, in a way that, say, a more compendious presentation like Andrew Robinson and Krishna Dutta's 1997 volume, uh, The Myriad Minded Man, which goes into about 500 pages, uh, you know, might not. So, so shorter books often accomplish what, uh, uh, you know, the more compendious volumes don't. So in that sense, uh, perhaps the biography will help. I hope it does. And uh, the Cambridge Companion edited by Shukanta Chodhri is um, uh, really the best of its scholarship uh, uh, as it is available now. Um, Shukanta Chodhri was also general editor of the Oxford Tagore translations. There are five volumes of that between 2000 and 2006. He oversaw Bichitra, which is the Tagore Verorium that has, uh, uh, you know, brought everything Rabindranath wrote online, which is the most important resource nowadays in, in, in a sense. So, so there's a huge contribution there. And then uh, now the, uh, we have the latest offering, which is the Cambridge Companion. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's solid scholarship. It's, it's immensely useful. It will be immensely useful to many, many scholars. And I'm sure it will uh, survive as a, as a guide and an aid to understanding uh, Tagore's work over, over his lifetime. But as you make clear, there is still plenty, um, plenty of work to do. Uh, Razinka uh, Chaturi, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Still to come on the show, how Ivor Gurney's great pain transformed into a new kind of verse. And let's talk about independent bookshops. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we turn to the poet and composer Ivor Gurney, we wanted to remind listeners that Indie Bookshop Week, an initiative that celebrates independent bookshops in the UK and Ireland, is fast approaching. It begins on the 19th of June and typically involves events, readings, activities, prizes, launches, and that sort of thing. In the past 18 months have, of course, been particularly challenging for small businesses. So there's an especially strong sense of celebration and gratitude and probably relief uh, for those who have made it, I suppose. Uh, yes, I'm sure there will be. Um, and um, just to toot our own horn for a minute, we did try and help um, independent bookshops, the TLS did, by giving them free advertising. We just asked people to write in and, and tell us what they wanted to um, to say, and we gave them free advertising in the paper. And it ended up being a lovely directory, didn't it? was it? lovely, yeah. It was really nice. And, and they were very, uh, some of them had really wonderful strap lines and uh, descriptions and things. But Thea, can you remind me whose brilliant idea that was? <laughs> no, no, I can't. Oh, I, I think I can um, remember. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was yours. <laughs> Stop being so modest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, in a similar spirit, though, we are asking you listeners to tweet us at the TLS or to send an email to letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk, nominating your local and or most cherished independent bookshop and telling us what you think sets them apart. I don't see why we need limit ourselves to the UK and Ireland, though. Uh, so nominate freely wherever you are. Uh, we'll read out as many as we can on that week's episode. So you have about two weeks to get in touch and don't forget to let us know if you're happy to be named on the show along with your nomination lucy would you like to get things started early uh yes i'm not going to nominate one because how can you nominate just one i'm just going to do a sort of um 
can I do a bunch of them? A scattergun approach to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just thinking of them. Um, there's a beautiful shop called The Golden Hair and one of the nicest streets that I can think of, uh, St. Stephen Street in Edinburgh on the way down to Stockbridge. It's very beautiful. If I remember, it's blue and gold, the shop, and uh, it's got a lovely selection of stuff. Um, London, uh, there's Gaze the Word, which is an institution mm. and has has really, uh, really good events very often. There's uh, a bookshop just for children called Tales on Moon Lane in Hearn Hill. Uh, and they, that bookseller recommended to me the Mr. Gum series, which is genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever read. It is for children. But don't let that stop you. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> the Nancy Mitford that we had been talking about a couple of weeks ago, Haywood Hill, I think must be the grandest independent bookshop, don't you think? Mm. I'm pretty sure it's got a warrant from the Queen. <laughs> Nancy Mitford worked there while she was writing The Pursuit of Love. Did she? Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Because mm. th there's the bit in The Pursuit of Love where she's running a bookshop and they all come in and chat. And I think basically that's that's also oh, right. Wild. So it's method, method. It <laughs> I think it was a bit. Uh, one that you would like, Thea Village Books in Dulwich Village, which yes. is a brilliant bookshop, but also very dog friendly. So if you took Alf in, <laughs> they would give him a treat, I reckon. Um, <laughs> and one that I remembered um, from in Falmouth in Cornwall called Beowulf Books. Yes, I will be there next week, in fact. What, really? In, in Beowulf yeah. Books? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> what a weird coincidence. Yes, That I is will. a weird coincidence. I mean, well, they brilliant. don't know that, but if they happen to listen, I'll see you in about a week's time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I might save um, my nomination uh, for the week itself. Um, but one bookshop I have been intrigued by, I might mention, uh, it, it opened It opened at the end of April this year. So extra marks, I think, given the abysmal uh, viral context in which this business has been launched uh it's hoxton books at 99 east street in east london have you seen this one lucy i have heard about it i think yeah 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 so it has a it has a special focus on independent publishers but um it also tends to organize books by podcast so say um you'd go in and you'd find a books table with with books that have appeared on this program or uh, the bbc's start the week uh which seems a nice overlap i suppose ours our table would probably be especially eclectic i like to think do we have a table do we genuinely have a table we don't have i don't know table. i'm not sure i have like have one one bit or something that would be brilliant no if not could we have one please <laughs> <laughs> i pleaded <laughs> yeah come on hoxton books give us a table <laughs> so um yes send us your bookshops listeners and we will make a fuss over them in a few weeks time um but now lucy over to you Yes, we're going to talk about Ivor Gurney. So when you um, hear the name Ivor Gurney, you might think of him as one of the great war poets. Uh, and indeed he is. And he's commemorated at Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey as such. Gurney survived the First World War, but his best known work is still his war poetry because, sadly, he also suffered from mental illness and spent the last 15 years of his life in an asylum. He continued to write in the asylum, both music, as he was also a brilliant composer, particularly of songs, and poetry, but much of this work has been neglected or lost. His biographer, Kate Kennedy, who has written about Ivor Gurney for us this week, is here to tell us about this later work. Kate, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Um, can you tell us about how, because um, we might be familiar with, the, as I say, the war poetry of, of Ivor Gurney, can you tell us about how, how his poetry changed after he was put in the asylum? 
Sure. Uh, so Gurney went to the war when he was an undergraduate. So really, his poetry was in its absolute infancy. And it developed very quickly, as it did for so many of the other war poets, you know, Wilfred Owen being the obvious example, as events um, developed for him during the war, he, he wrote to catch up with what he was experiencing. He then had about four years of the, the beginnings of a creative, mature voice after the war. And then the asylum happened to him. He was incarcerated in 1922. So really, he was just starting to emerge by the point at which he was locked up as an independent, fluent, poetic voice. So in a sense, we see that as the end of his life and that there is this kind of writing writing in a vacuum from then onwards. But actually, the 15 years in the asylum until his death were the majority of his adult life. So his poetic style continues to develop. Um, interestingly, he's writing aside from the, the intellectual world of London, he's not under any pressure from any publishers and he's not really in any kind of community. So so it's a sort of terrible liberation in a sense. It, it was a disaster for him being in the asylum, but equally he could immerse himself in the poets he loved and Walt Whitman, Gerald Manley Hopkins, and take elements of their work and develop his own in directions that just didn't need to have the same kind of bound that perhaps other writers writing for for the market, writing to be published, um, would impose on themselves. He he could go in any direction, and he does. And and his poetry in the asylum, most of which is still unpublished, is absolutely extraordinary and a very individual, independent, modernist voice. And, and before before we go into deeper into the the quality, the nature of of that that poetry, what were the reasons for his confinement in in an asylum? I mean, what was he manifesting that meant that it was deemed necessary to keep him away from society? Well, he'd had a breakdown as an undergraduate at the Royal College of Music before the war was declared, and he'd signed up in order to cure what he called his neurasthenia. So the, the cultural myth of Gurney is that he got shell shock and broke down as a result of the war, and that actually isn't really true at all. I mean, of course, the traumas that he endured on the Western Front weren't going to make him any happier, but actually he joined because the structure of the army and the discipline of it were, were elements that he'd already recognised would hold him together. So by 1922, he had started sitting with a cushion on his head to ward off the electrical waves that were interfering with him, he believed. He had voices in his head telling him to kill himself. He was going from police station to police station asking for a revolver. And of course, there's only so much of that that you can you can do for so long. And um, his brother, who potentially had similar issues of mental instability, it's very hard to tell from this distance, was very unsympathetic um, and had a young family and certainly didn't have time for this kind of behavior. And so uh, ordered a magistrate and two GPs to his house Gurney was staying with him at the time and they sat and, and read the paper and tried to look unassuming and Gurney didn't know why they were there. And after a while, the, they were starting to, to say to his brother, Ronald, look, this, there's nothing wrong with him. Ivor seems fine. Until he made the mistake of going up to, to one of these men and saying, would you mind lending me a revolver so I can kill myself? And of course, that's enough to be certified. So he was certified suicidal um, as much as insane, which actually is a, a category in itself. He's a danger to himself. And that's enough reason to have him put away. And he then ended up in Barnwood Asylum, a little private asylum just on the edge of Gloucester. 
and then after he tried to escape from there one too many times was locked up in the much bigger county asylum in calls that the city of london mental hospital which is just off the dartford estuary um so he was nearer his his friends in london but it was a much more secure sort of a much larger institution that felt they could deal better with him if we're talking about the because as you say continued to produce produce an enormous amount during that time um and it's it's incredibly difficult to unpick it isn't it because maybe if he had had better mental health or even perhaps better treatment i'm not sure i think his treatment seems to have been you know up and down certainly um he might have gone in the direction of modernism anyway or perhaps as you said the war uh, it would, wouldn't be surprising if the war affected uh, his work or his style as uh, as well as um you know what what he was experiencing is it very difficult to unpick what what is owed to what absolutely i think he he writes as the sum of his parts he writes as someone who has experienced the world through landscape through music he has experienced the worst of the western front and he's experienced um, total mental disintegration has been right to that brink two or three times and, and then back again. And he's now writing with the world having forgotten him, writing to maintain his own sense of self for himself in the face of impending madness. So whichever one of those factors makes him a modernist, it would be impossible to say, but the combination of all of them makes for, for some absolutely fascinating verse. And I think Gurney never had any sense of boundaries at any point in his life. He would walk through the night, he would sleep under hedges. He thought across music and literature in a way that's almost unprecedented. So I think he would always have, have pushed further than, than the more conservative voices in music and literature. And it's just, it's so sad that we don't have much of that, that experimental work in print at the moment. Uh, to to really reflect what it was he had to offer us as a composer and a poet. And another um, great pity of this um, is that a lot of the work has been lost, hasn't it? Songs as well as poetry. Some has, yeah, absolutely. Um, there were there were there were, the archive is box load after box load of manuscripts and his, his handwriting, of course, if, if you're writing for nobody, you can write as appallingly as you want and not date anything. And it's a it's a minefield trying to, to negotiate your way around Gurney's archive. But there are there's a little note in one of the boxes uh, saying these are uh, some you know, representative of other patterns of incoherence, all of which are worthless and have been burnt. Now, what on earth was in that box? You know, it's uh, who knows. And and again, he had unlimited time. You're 15 years in an asylum with nothing else to do, no income to to have to earn, no distractions, very very few visitors. And so he wrote and wrote and wrote in you know, on a scale that most writers couldn't dream of. But much of it is very repetitious because nothing new is happening for him. He's mining his his life up to the point of incarceration, so it is like a posthumous autobiography. And so the, the same patterns recur and recur. And we have to negotiate our way through all that and find different ways of reading what can be very similar documents. And it's almost like shuffling the same the same colours of the same patterns around in a kaleidoscope and just just rearranging them slightly each time. He's he's trying out his favourite themes in each poem and each letter, and then standing back and having a look at how they fit together, and then writing it again in a slightly different way and standing back. And so it it invites a different kind of reading. But to the people who've gone before, who had the the very real practical problem of what to do with these thousands of bits of paper. 
some of this stuff just looks the same as everything else or you know, the same letters rehearsing the events of his life over and over and over again, the patterns of incoherence. And yet, of course, the irony is that if it's a pattern, it's not incoherent. It is a pattern. And that's where the value lies. And you say he was he, when you were talking about his handwriting, you, you said he was writing for nobody. Is that a real is that is that what you think? I mean, is that the impression that you get that he was writing with no thought about being uh, read by others, let alone, you know, published? Was it a personal project? Is there a sense of him trying to make sense of things? Is it is it a process? Well, and I believe he was writing for his life. He was writing because he was locked up, separated from the outside world. He was a patient who was a case study. He, you know, his alternative biography was recorded by his doctors in his case notes. And it was not how he chose to identify himself. Just you know, the patient reports, delusions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, his weight and his height, these are not the statistics and the facts of his life that he chose to identify himself through. And so his poetry had to stand in for that. So there was a desperately urgent, very real personal need to express himself and to keep, to keep himself alive through his writing. Whether or not it was read, I think in some ways was a secondary concern for him. It, his project always was was a relationship to Gloucestershire. I mean, it's very, it's wonderfully eccentric in himself. He was a, a maker, he described himself, and he wanted to honour Gloucestershire. And honour is a word that crops up with many interesting meanings for Gurney over and over again. And so he's writing to to shape the landscape through his words and to express his love for it and what it's meant to him. And so in a sense, it's the hills that are listening, it's not people. But he is, you know, there is a trickle of poetry being published in, in various journals and papers. The BBC are performing some of his songs at various points, uh, three or four years into his uh, incarceration, he edits his own manuscripts because they're about to be performed. But actually his edits don't make it into the performance. So in a sense, he's, he's half talking to people, but they're not necessarily listening. Um, and many of his letters are never published. I'm not published, sorry, they're not published at all, but they're not, they're not posted. So there is a very sad um, sort of subset of the archive that are hundreds upon hundreds of letters to often recipients who aren't even possible. So to the army of Bapome or to the women of New England or to the Metropolitan Police. I mean, what, what postcode do you put on any of those? And, and they are him, again, as I say, rehearsing the events of his life, kind of standing by his CV saying, this, this is who I am, this is who I was, this is me up to the present. Help me, release me or give me chance of death is his recurring phrase. I appeal for release or chance of death. And and you pull these out of the envelopes for the first time and unfold them for the first time and there's no stamp. And it, so his voice is not getting through, it isn't being heard. And there's something so desperately sad about that, someone whose identity is so utterly invested in their ability to communicate through their pen and finding that you're possibly one of the first people to read this correspondence that has never got mm. further than the asylum. It must have been, yeah. I mean, just uh, aside from the, 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 of course, it's very valuable work to to bring it to light, but it must have been heartbreaking working through all that material. It really was. It really was. One of the, the particular moments for me, I think, were 
knowing how much how much store Gurney put by his ability to communicate and by his you know, by the pen. Yeah, of course, you know, the cliche is the pen is the the tool of your trade as a writer. But for him, it was his voice and it was his power. And then, and he despised pencil. He's very rude about people who write in pencil. And then I found that in in 1922 and early 23, when he's just been put in the asylum, that for months his manuscripts are all in pencil. And I, I was scratching my head about this, thinking, well, that's that's very ungurney. Perhaps they didn't allow. I don't know, did they not give him a pen? How weird. And, um, and then read in a mental hospital manual of the time as I was sort of you know, snuffling around in archives and finding out everything I possibly could about what life was like in the asylum, that actually if you were labelled suicidal, which was his status, and you were what was called on parchment, which meant that you had a, effectively a clipboard at the end of your bed saying, do not take your eyes off this patient, follow them everywhere, you weren't allowed a pen nib because you would slash your wrists with it. And so what was his only link to the outside world, even though those letters weren't getting posted, was a pen. He'd, it, he'd been infantilized, he'd, be, he'd have it taken off him, and he was writing in pencil because that was all he was allowed, probably eating with a spoon, followed into the toilet because a U-bend is a prime spot for hangings, we're told in, the, in this mental hospital manual, followed around a, a concrete square by an attendant instead of being able to roam the Gloucestershire landscape. And so just from that little, the materiality of that little detail, seeing these pencil marks, a whole other picture emerges of just the the degradation of it and the indignity and what what this change in status must have felt like to him to go from total freedom however deranged however you know however impossible he was finding life to being this sort of child prisoner uh, very much against his will he did have some encouragement didn't he and uh, and understanding as you say he had some visitors and a little bit of his work sort of there was still some interest in his work but there was also a lot of neglect and and uh, i mean it's fair to say harsh treatment wasn't there there, there was. And in some ways, you know, if you are locked up for 15 years, you, you can't really blame the outside world for forgetting about you, um, particularly when you don't have relatives or much money outside the asylum walls being able to, to promote your reputation. But there were a few very, very loyal followers. Um, I learned at one point um, that, that Vaughan Williams, who'd been his teacher when he returned to the, to the Royal College after the war, uh, actually came into the asylum really quite regularly, which which is incredible because he was you know, he was a really busy man. He had a huge career and many other demands on his time. But he would go to to visit Gurney in Dartford and take other musicians from the Royal College and play through some of his songs. So there is a counter to this like, this image of him writing into silence, writing in isolation, and and that is very much true. That would have been his experience, but equally. There was this incredible sort of ad hoc outreach scheme from the college coming in. It's, there's Vaughan Williams playing through these songs. So when, when we're looking at these manuscripts, thinking, well, that's a bit odd. You know, that's a, that's a strange key change here. This could very well have been something that Vaughan Williams had had played and and found to be perfectly acceptable. And again, we have to be very very careful about how we how we assess the in inverted commas mad music because it was being played. It was being played by the greatest, most interesting musicians around at the time. Yes, it's, it's the same, isn't it, for music? I was thinking if you put uh, quite a lot of Charles Ives in front of anyone who's never heard it before, they just go, what What on earth is going on here? You know, well, I mean, they did do they did do that to him, but the, but he wasn't locked up is what I mean. You know, it's the context is very, very important, isn't it? I suppose is the point. 
It is. And, and avoiding the, I mean, it's, it's such a minefield, you know, what you do with, with mental instability and creativity and the, the links between them and that, the, which can be a very creative space, but the difficulties of that, that's that space as well you know do you do you with late schumann writing in an asylum do we do we not allow late schumann's works to be published or to be performed in case they you know they taint his reputation late beethoven is pretty crazy but you know but he made quite a name for himself so it's a... i was i was thinking about that because i thought of schumann but i thought schumann didn't write very much after he was in. no he did little bit did he well not 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 anything like as much as gurney um no. but but it was the voices in his head inspiring him you know mm. that's that's pretty mm. textbook it's and of course he thought he was beethoven for a while didn't he? exactly all all the best mad composers did you see it's a, there is a there is a precedent for it mm. um and so you say that he is in fact a major and overlooked presence in english modernism do you think he might now get um, more recognition? I, I think your book on him is coming out this month, isn't it? That's right. So my book, um, Dweller in Shadows, which is a, takes a, a quote from one of Gurney's poems, comes out on the 15th of June. And I've been making a documentary with BBC Radio 3, which comes out on Sunday the 20th, the Sunday feature, which is called Unmouthed. Um, taking a little quote of Gurney's on a scrap of paper in the archive where he looks at music scores and calls them poor, unmouthed creatures because he, he can't hear the music. Um, and I, you know, I, I would love for Gurney to take his place alongside the, the more canonical modernists. The, the very practical difficulty is that the vast majority of his modernist work is not yet in print. So it's very hard for anybody to, to, to assess this stuff. That is being worked on. Oxford University Press are very slowly bringing out a number of volumes of the asylum poetry. And so in a decade, this will hopefully look very different. But, but I hope that, that the research that I've done over far too many years on, on Gurney's archive and on this, this unseen material will, will at least sort of pave the way for, for future research. We'll see you back here in a decade then. <laughs> I'll write it in the diary now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate Kennedy. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Kate Kennedy and Rosinka Chowdhury. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.